is the Storymobile podcast. We are a solar-powered moving art space that travels to events and through neighborhoods to collect your stories. On Thursday, February 22nd, 2018, Storymobile was at the Eastside Freedom Library in St. Paul to celebrate Meridale LeSueur. One of the great voices of the 20th century, Meridale LeSueur was born on February 22nd in 1900. Her immense love and respect for the power of the people and the power of the word was ever present in her poetry, novels, and essays. Meridale's work touched generations of artists and activists from Minnesota and the Midwest to the wide expanse of this country and the world. To celebrate and honor Meridella Sewer's life and work, her family and fans joined together to hear established and emerging artists present and perform Meridella's work as well as work of their own. It's great to see so many people here uh, to the Eastside Freedom Library um, for this special event honoring the living legacy of Meridella Sewer and the many ways that Meridell is still with us today. Um, basic housekeeping, I just want to explain, restrooms are downstairs. Um, we like to leave the keys in the door to the restrooms and ask that people knock. And so if you take the key into the restroom and leave it in the restroom, that makes it hard for anyone else to ever get in the restroom. So. We encourage you not to do that. Um, and go easy with the keys. They break, and that's annoying. Um, so it's great to see so many people here. There, there are so many people to thank. Uh, Shania Matson, um, who really had the idea because she wanted a really big birthday party uh, for herself. Uh, yeah. And. Uh, Kimberly Nightingale uh, from the St. Paul Almanac, and uh, Meridel's extended family. Um, I'm, if I start naming some people, I'll forget some people and I'll get in trouble, so I'm not going to do that. Um, but Meridel is in the house uh, for sure. Um, and I want to introduce Monica from Sister Black Press, who's going to explain what she's doing back in the far corner that we invite you to participate in as the night goes on. Monica? Good evening. Um, so I brought my mobile press with me tonight. It's a little vintage clamshell press. It's mounted to the back of a cargo bike. So I invite you all at the end to come and uh, pull a print. And I'm going to read what's on this. It's a keepsake for tonight, and Barb chose it. Um, so it's from North Star Country, an excerpt. The people are a story that never ends, a river that winds and falls and gleams erect in many dawns. Lost in deep gullies, it turns to dust, rushes in the spring freshet, emerges to the sea. The people are a story that is a long, incessant, coming alive from the earth in better wheat. Percherons, babies, and engines, persistent and inevitable. The people always know that some of the grain will be good, 
some of the crop will be saved. Some will return and bear the strength of the kernel that from the bloodiest year, some survive to outfox the frost. Really explain how dramatic her production is back there. So it's a press mounted on a bicycle uh, and you will get a hand printed copy uh, of this excerpt from North Star Country. So please do avail yourselves uh, of Monica's skill and the press. Uh, we had a very interesting time figuring out whether her bicycle fit in the elevator or not. <laughs> um, you'll have to ask her, you'll have to ask her. Um, and I just wanna say a little bit about where you are, because um, I think that the Eastside Freedom Library is very much in keeping with Meridel's legacy and traditions. Um, this is a historic Carnegie Library. I always like to say this library was a gift from immigrant iron miners, steel workers, coal miners, um, who sweated and died for Andrew Carnegie so that he could become the richest bastard in America uh, in, the, in the early 20th century. And that's who we have to thank for the existence of this building, uh, which is 101 years old this year. Um, we have been here as the Eastside Freedom Library for three years and eight months. And we have assembled uh, with a great deal of uh, generous volunteer help. Uh, we have assembled a collection of 18,000 books in labor, immigration, African-American, feminist, social justice history, and the ways, as Meridel would have loved, the ways that those histories were told in poetry, visual art, fiction, memoir, theater, um, music. Um, generous people gave us their books. Many of those people are no longer walking the earth, but their spirit is here with their books. Um, and we're doing a lot of work with kids that do History Day projects, and we have all kinds of people in here using the books, and we have lots and lots of programs. Um, so there are, again, there is the guest book, there are flyers on the counter. Um, over the course of the evening if you have questions. And I always like to say, particularly when we have such a great crowd as this, that if you have ideas for things that you would like to do here, or that you think we should do here, please suggest them. Um, and many of the things that happen here are because somebody suggests them. Um, I do not have a monopoly on good ideas um, by any stretch. So, um, I want to begin uh, by introducing Jayanti Kyle, uh, who's going to set a tone for the evening in her miraculous ways. So, Jayanti. Well, good evening. Good evening. Because I'm still learning about um, Miss Meridel Lesur. I will bring you the poet of another Minnesotan. And turn off the sound. <laughs> when your mother sends back all your invitations, and your father 
that you're tired of yourself and all of your creations. Mm -hmm. Won't you come see me, Queen Jane? Won't you come see me, Queen Jane? Now when all of the flower ladies want back what they have lent you, and the smell of their roses does not remain, and all of your children start to resent you. Come see me, Queen Jane. Won't you come see me, Queen Jane? When all of the clowns that you have commissioned have died in battle or in vain, and you're sick of all this. Rep, 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 repetition. I'll be your name. 
There are several seats up here and here. Please take advantage and come on up and sit. Um, our next presentation, performance, is coming from Barb Tilson. So. so profoundly to us today. So you can keep the lights on just the way they are for just a minute, Peter. <laughs> I have um, a slideshow that uh, Gayla Ellis and I made. I'm going to tell you about in a minute. She's unfortunately sick today, so she uh, wasn't able to join us. But um, it's a very special one. And, uh, I wanted to just start with introducing myself. I'm um, married to uh, Meridal's grandson, David. We've been married for 42 years. And I first came into the family and met Meridal some few, few years before that. And 
I think there is really no one I can uh, think of that has influenced me more deeply and more profoundly as a songwriter and as a poet and an activist and an organizer. Um, I used to type her uh, journals sometimes for her as she was working on her poetry and uh, new stories and I felt like I was really swimming in a sea of her imagery and learning so much about the richness and beauty of language and the deep and abiding strength and power and ability that we have as a people to make change and to heal our world. So in 1985, uh, Meridal went to the uh, Nairobi, Kenya, UN conference, Third World Conference on Women. Uh, she went there with Neela Schlooning and came back with these incredible stories about the women who had come from all across Africa and around the world uh, to gather in uh, Nairobi to make change and connect with each other. And this poem she wrote about it is called Arise. So for Meridel's 90th birthday, we had a concert and Gayla and I invited artists in the family and uh, from circles of people close to her to take her poem Arise and make an art piece in whatever their own form was uh, that was inspired by this poem. And then we presented it at the concert as a slideshow, so wanted to bring it back to you tonight. And the artists, we can go ahead and put the slides up on the screen. And Peter, you can go ahead and turn out all the lights now. <laughs> we'll keep the little, little lights there. So this is uh, Meridal's daughter, Deborah. Deborah lives here. Go ahead, you can keep. And this is Ricardo Levens Morales. And Miranda Bergman, another member in the extended family. Takumba Aiken. Robert DeJarle. Marilyn Lindstrom. This is Lorraine Lasser and Mac Lasser. Mac is Meridal's brother. And here's Meridal and her other daughter, Rachel. Can you go closer to the mic? Yeah. Okay. It's really hard to hear you. I sing louder than I speak, so here we go. <laughs> they came. They came bright over the old African horizon. They came. wrapped in flowered woolen bandages. They rose in great waves, earth in their flesh. They came out of the mortgage-stolen country. They came appearing in their massive soaring power. They came rising out of the mortgage-stolen country. They came out of the corrupt city of Nairobi, skyscrapers actually embedded in the starving breasts of thousands of farmers and workers. 
the property sign brazenly, Standard Oil, Exxon, General Motors, all the predators from my country now looting the earth and the cheap labor of living beings. They came in the thunder, carrying their dead children. They drummed and danced and shook the gourds in flesh and power and survival. Don't stop me, the Sudan woman cried. I came to speak of hunger. Don't stop me, I appear at last. I am not supposed to be here. We were not supposed to survive. But we appear in the thunder of our solidarity. We claim our earth. We claim our flesh. We have been not. We claim our earth. We claim our flesh. We have been not. We shall be all. We shall be all. I saw them. Okay, comfortable. Good evening. Is that pretty good right there? 
Okay. First of all, thank you for this blessing of being in the um, presence of a wonderful woman that I don't know a whole lot about, but I can feel her energy in the room, her family, her community, uh, the solidarity of us working together. Um, happy birthday, Shadai. Um, my selection today is called The Garden, and it's a story of a person being displaced from land, from home, from community. This is my garden, she sniffs, her mouth firm, her chin squared, and I'll have a garden party too. Then she squats down and begins to turn up dirt that turns up more surprises, bugs. Bugs with countless legs, bugs with wings, bugs with no discernible way to know face from behind and back to front. Fat earthworms, pink and moist and twisted from loose chunks of dirt in her hands, and she screams. Jumping to her feet, she stands right into the path of a wasp that was attracted to the pooling waters. She feels its pinching sting on her cheek, and she is running and ducking and swatting. Bees, wasps are not bees. They don't die when, when they sting. The men sitting across at the White House are interrupted by the woman again. They see an old woman hopping and swinging in thin air. Then she is swinging something snake-like, shooting water in all directions, still screaming. When a curious squirrel rounds the house to investigate, it gets hit with a stream of water, and the squirrel scolds the old woman, which interrupts her hysteria. She begins to laugh. She is a mess to herself. Wet clothes clinging to breasts that have long ago left their post. <laughs> and are behind still round enough to be called junk in the trunk. I don't know what I'm doing, she laughs, and I'm scared of bugs, and little bugs that can't kill me, they can't even hurt me. And then her laughter changes into a moan, a whimper, and more tears. I don't know nothing about making a garden. I don't know nothing about growing things. I don't even know Mother Earth, and she began sobbing, deep chugging, and pulling sobs. Ah, sheep, says a man across the street, not today, woman. What is she finding in her yard, another one asks. She ain't a country woman, another man remarked. She's city folks. Most city folks have lost their roots. Like you from some other country, one challenges him. Island man, he says, wounded with pride and sadness. My family grew everything we ate, every day, never had a hungry day. Always hungry here in the United States of America. And the two men look at him with more respect. And one of them remembers a Bob Marley song, and there's this spontaneous rapture of no woman, no cry. And they make it through most of the song in harmony and most of the lyrics. But she does cry. She wants to see something for her labor. She has worked since she was 15 and has little to show for 50 years of working. Thoughts come to her that causes her heart to panic and leap against her ribs. How do I space these plants? How many inches into the ground? How much space around their roots? Will my garden be beautiful? Will I be able to plant enough to sustain myself in case I have no money? What if there's some national emergency? I can't work no faster, she announces and lies down on the ground. Child, a mothering voice whispers, all you have to do is dig a hole and plant this, and put the plant inside. Cover the roots with dirt and add a little water, and I'll do the rest. What? The voice repeats itself. The old woman raises her head and says, is that all? 
I can make a seed grow into a plant that grows through concrete, the voice tells her. The woman nods, this she has seen. But I am ashamed that I don't know how. I'm ashamed that I don't know you. You know me very well. I do? And the mothering voice is amused. Of course you do. You know my cycles as you know your own. You feel me when I am dark or when I am light. You know and feel my changes. You watch my elements. I feel outside the elements, the old woman confines. You are the elements. But I, I, I don't feel natural. I've lost some piece of myself, my true nature. Daughter, you are nature. You are me, I am you. Mother and daughter, daughter and mother. And the woman presses her warm body, worn body against the ground. Womb to womb, she lays like a child against an ample breast. She rolls, muds and coolness anointing her from head to toe. Then she is flat-backed, facing the sky, feeling the pulsating ray of the early spring sun. Then more tears, then quiet, and then prayer, libations. At last the old woman sighs, inspiring energy into herself, and she pulls relaxed limbs together and sits up. The men are stone silent, vigilantly watching, waiting. She waves, releasing them. They wave back. She stands up and begins making new rows of holes. She then scoops the seedling from the pots with tenderness, with overwhelming loving care, and as she works steadily and focused, she can hear the mothering voice hum. She spends the rest of the day working her garden, creating colonies of color and texture with rocks and pebbles. As the sun begins to dim, pulling back its heat, the end of the day of traffic brings her to the attention that her garden is complete. Carefully marked popsicle sticks announce the coming attractions of her garden, a blend of flowers and vegetables, edible and decorative. Her sense of accomplishments becomes a healthy pride, and she kisses her right hand, index and fingers, and touches the ground. Thank you, Mother Earth, she says. In her concentrated focus, planting seeds and seedlings, she has held a squatting position for hours. She realizes she will have difficulty standing, and she laughs, that deep old lady laugh that comes when laughing at yourself, that self it takes years to make acquaintance and fully accept. It is a laughter summoned when facing an old enemy, even death. Then, three sets of hands pull her body out of the crotch. Um, excuse me. Happy birthday, Shanae. Happy birthday, Shanae. 
you guys laugh. Um, so I'm a, I'm a newcomer to Meridel's work. Um, it was just actually this last year um, that my friend Ben, who you'll hear from later, uh, said that I should read Meridel's work. Um, and so I did. And as I was reading some things, and then especially um, seeing the video that I think some of you might have been involved in creating that you have here, uh, My People Are My Home, um, I started to think, wow, that really resonates with me, the things that I'm thinking about and that I'm writing about. Many of them are on the same themes and in a similar kind of voice. And I thought to myself, I wonder when Meridel's birthday is. Because in, in that piece, she talks about being born in the winter um, in this landscape. Um, and I looked it up, and so we shared a birthday. And so that's where I was like, this would be a fun way to honor Meridel and, um, and then see some faces of people that I love and hear from them. So. Um, I'm going to read something that I wrote. Um, it was written this last year while I was reading Meredith's work. Um, I don't know exactly how it was influenced, but this line, um, the body repeats the landscape. They are the source of each other and create each other, <clears throat> really resonates. And I've been writing a series of poems. This is one of those uh, that is in response to top 40 country songs. Uh, which I'm not a big fan of, but I listen to them and then try to respond with some of the stories that I think are missing um, from that landscape. <laughs> if you can imagine that. Um, so this one is in response to a song called They Don't Know by Jason Aldean. You don't need to listen to it. This is better. <laughs> um, <clears throat> My mother never learned to swim, but that's just one of our stories. Another goes like this. My father used to play music at a bar called The Corner Club named for its place in the elbow of a gravel road that makes a sharp turn eight miles north of town for reasons unknown to most people. Surveyors will tell you this is a correction line, a place where the curve of the earth met a desire to map. Long before my father met my mother at the corner club, landmen decided to correct a line right there so the whole of this place could be parceled into near-perfect squares, divided from itself and sold. My mother arrived to a home made from this violence. Soon after the survey, the landmen dug the first gravel pit in Aiken County, used the rock to make highways through lowlands. Then they drained what they could, made farms and money from potatoes, winter wheat, and sugar beets. But they left our swamp, which was too low and thick, and in the elbow of that road, they made a bar. In the back of that bar, my father made music, and my mother, who never learned to swim or to sing, found that if she listened, she could hear words before they were spoken. What they don't know. We are made from the failures of maps and the promise of music, or the promise of maps and the failures of music. In all the places where bodies of water refuse to give their shape to territory, we seep. And we are made from the moment when bodies learn to be buoyant, to flow together from a source unnamed, in spite of everything the landmen claim. My mother never learned to swim, but she grew up floating the Mississippi on a ramshackle raft made from john boats and barn doors and turned up hoods of broken down cars. No matter what they tell you, she said, ours is not the same river. Our river is narrow and wild and forgiving. Our river curves softly and it moves slow. Our river is not a line in the land to correct. It is the land, and it is all the water they can't see. We were told never to swim in our river because it carries our ghosts who have names and miss our joy. They don't know those names, and we were never supposed to tell them. 
They don't know how our river swallows all the things we've lost and the wicked will we've wished away. They don't know how our mothers won't forget. Our mothers who hold our stories and violence pooled in their hips, reminding us there is no away. I learned to swim in gravel, staring up at machines that sat idle on the edge of a blue-green hole we called the pit. We were always waiting for the landmen to dig again, waiting for the bubble to unburst and the bust to boom so there would be good work for the men who left. Our mothers shouted over the water, they'll be back, calling us in with anticipation and warning as if a storm like that could be weathered with grace. But when the landmen finally returned, they found the pit overgrown and the children gone. And instead of leaving the place to heal itself, they called it a lake and gave it a new name. Built vacation homes and bike trails and a brewery they called the pit. When my mother started to bleed for the first time, her mother told her it was an ordinary curse that would only bring trouble. Close your legs. And convinced she was dying, my mother tried to stop the flow with her hands, but couldn't. Some people call them swamp stompers, the wild girls who live where the land is still wet, its contours unmapped. To them, female bodies are just wildlife, another lonely place they can fill with their stories of taking. They don't know all the water we hold, or that we hold it for our daughters. They don't know the source of our lives or our longing to live. I knew her as Riverine, first daughter, a ghost now like the others. According to my grandmother, a dowser who traced our power and our heartbreak to a vein of water that flows unseen between two worlds, I would have three children. Two would be daughters born from the same river. In the dream of Riverine, my grandmother said she looked over the water and saw a bird she didn't recognize. It had a song she'd never heard and would never hear again. But she told me to listen, same as my mother did. Though we don't know what a bird is saying, we can still follow its song. Thank you. Okay. Um, our next reader is Ed Bockley, who, among other things, teaches at Metro State in the neighborhood, um, and recently curated a film and discussion at Bryant Lake Bowl. So Ed's at every interesting venue in the Twin Cities. <laughs> Thank you. I was thinking about what Peter was saying earlier about this beautiful building, which I and I think a lot of people um, have always admired, and all the workers and the sweat and the vision on many levels that are in these walls. And it got me thinking, um, I've been thinking about water and words a lot lately and how, um, I don't know if I can articulate this, but how the, the impurity of each of those things is somehow related. And if you, um, if you think of all the things in the state of our water in many places in the world, in the state of words and how it's been, how they've been corrupted. Um, that's about all I can say about that now. But uh, words, yeah, words. In a library, every language is a castle. Every language is a cathedral. Um, and every two weeks, the final living um, 
by that I mean every language has taken eons to evolve from the first sounds that you know were uttered into what I'm speaking now, which is English, and every language spoken is a, is a different kind of cathedral with different kind of grammar to hold the uh, the equivalent of the beams and joints together with the, with the mortar and all that stuff. So every two weeks the final living speaker of a language dies, and a lot of these languages are indigenous. Um, here, in our, in, on, on this continent, on, all over the world, actually. Um, and by that, I mean the literal last speaker of that lang culture's language. Usually, an old person dies, and it has not been passed on to the next generation. And at this rate, by the time we hit 2050, Half of the languages, no, not half, 90% of the languages that are spoken today will be extinct. And so, the, you know, our children, our grandchildren will know a world where only one out of 10 languages exists and the rest will have gone dead. And by that, I don't mean um, like Latin or Greek, which evolved into other languages. I mean dead, gone, extinct. Often, and many of these languages have never been written or um, uh, uh, archived by linguists. And so, I know I'm going on, but um, I feel I feel like very inspired to talk about this in front of all these old books. Um, along with these languages, <laughs> old and new books. I'm talking about the people. You each are libraries, genetic libraries, right? All right, I'm going to shut up and read the poem. Um, it's called the world. And along, I just want to say one last thing. So along with these languages, what goes? Because I always get, when, when I have brought, talked about this before, some people say, hey, well, isn't that a good thing? We all, if we all spoke the same one language, then wouldn't we all kind of get along better? And it's sort of like, well, you know, different, ask, different cultures have different ideas of, of nature and time and space, and they even per perceive those things differently. Um, different, different cultures have different stories, creation myths, different recipes, different jokes, different songs. If you think the world would be richer uh, with just songs in English, um, you need to think about that a little more. So this poem is called World, and it's about that. I think I'm too close to Metro State because I'm in lecture mode. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. World. Dear speaker, in a future age, when only a handful of tongues remain, I write this to you as a song, even as I know it won't do. Even as I know the words I speak are devastation. I don't expect you to understand, but I want you to know there is another language in which I dream. Sometimes I think it's Korean. Other nights, my dead harmony sewing back together a broken room. Or my neighbors, a family of Ojibwas, welding their minivans, cinder blocks teetering. Summer evenings, 
the Hmong girl and boy echo hide and seek with cousins down the street. Or this spring, Juan, the Mexican kid next door, suddenly 14 shuffling steps on the corner, baggy stuffed in his shorts, truant every afternoon. I see him some days through my window, rapping in a back alley alone in broken English to his iPod, as I've seen him since he was 10. Youngest of four undocumented brothers in a boarding room basement I watch through their window well, like an evening TV show whose writers are all angry drunks. And I wonder, what will happen to this slightly dumpy boy's heart out of sync with his tongue? The only two muscles you really have to move with wings through this world. A shiny black SUV pulls up each Friday. He climbs in, and I wonder, if I did the right thing three years back by urging my other neighbor, an old white woman, not to call the cops on him. Dear speaker, in a future age when only a handful of lexical bouquets remain to light these monstrous highways, I write this to you as a human piece of coal, origin of orange, shelved away in some petrified repository, even as I know it's too late for you to bind and open me, even as I know yet another world language will become extinct this week, forever gone like Atlantis, like Atlantis or Matanzuma's kingdom, Sumerian, Gothic, Koguryo, Tasmanian, Scots, Gaelic, Mohawk, Iroquois, like a global hurricane of power and indifference veering toward Flemish and Basque, Ainu, Anishinaabe, and yes, one day, if turnabout is fair play, maybe even this language I tease apart for inconsistencies each night to house me. I wish I could tattoo this prayer to my palm, even as I know it's way too long, longer than my body, my whole life, this eviscerated pink and black spilling through the forest of my sleep, though yesterday just another passionate Somali debate awakening me on the 21A, a mismatched couple whispering over borscht and pirashki at Kamarcheks on Hennepin. Once some Greek harangue over the baklava's freshness at Bill's imported, ah yeah, and the pho thai every day, every Sunday, I supersize whose bony broth brings tears to my eyes in Frogtown, and sometimes I know I'm just another ghost passing through this century one of a long line of hungry souls before me, each a spiritual refugee. Dear Father, who art in heaven, who fled your homeland, war-torn in flames, I write this to you from the end of the world to forgive you for your rage, even as you emptied its fear into your own family's tears. All night, Manhattan, from the Williamsburg Bridge this summer is beautiful, an entire island lit up, scintillating like a Christmas tree asleep so peacefully on its side. Like the one omni-crowned, each December, a newborn prince, I relinquish you from the preterite spiritual RNA erased by missionaries and sunglass generals handing out candy, cigarettes, crosses, and European names. Dear future, I'm writing you from an imperfect case in a secret code I've had to reinvent myself with. Associations and inflections, rawest of imaginations, a disciple of time and a bulky patois, a drift migrant with no motor, canvas or oars, only these few city stars faulty neon thresholds, in truth only two. Dear time, how I envy the cleanliness of your hands. Dear love, why do I need your shadow so deeply inside mine? I don't know where any of us are going, but I'm sure on the other side of the world there is a language I have never heard. It is beautiful. 
And in this dying tongue, there are words for love and God that resemble bread and wing. Or another forest language in which mother and knife equal drawer and sing. An island wood is somewhere desert milk, and berry elsewhere is a door. And if you added up all these dying words and the people who speak them, all their memories, histories, and lessons, all their gods, jokes, rituals, and recipes, if you learned and stirred them over and again until each utterance became a star, a new footprint, the marrow of a poem, and yet, what do we say? Not I am an incomplete dictionary. But go back to where you come from if you don't like it this way. And yet, in the canopy of listening, what rasps in these voices is not hate or even fear, but grief, these groaning doors and shrinking portals to history. Dear speaker, in a future age when not 6,000 or 3,000 or even a dozen, but only one origin of the world remains, I write this to you as an elegy. In the beginning, there was a word, but it got lonely. So it prayed for brothers, sisters, and neighbors, until love was born, but along with it came shame, passion, greed, benevolence, and need, and soon some of the words became flowers and trees, and others animals, and eventually some were human beings, queens, and workers, kings, and thieves. Um, so our next Presenter, performer, presenter is Desdemona. Um, I, when I see her, one of the things that I recall is that when we first, some of us, used the term 9-11 in a cultural sense, we were talking 9-11-1999, the year that many of us came together to call for the freedom of Mumia Abu-Jamal. That was when I first met Desdemona, and she was one of the leading poets in our efforts back then. So many things that we've lost, including the cultural meaning that we first tried to give to 9-11. And of course, the tragic truth that we need is still behind bars 19 years after our efforts to free. So please, please welcome Desdemona. Um, I'm going to do a couple short pieces and just give a, a brief uh, explanation here at the top. Um, the first piece that I'm going to do was written somewhere, well, written between 2015 and finished in 2017, somewhere in between there it was created. Um, and uh, the reason I, I chose to do this piece is because um, you, you, the quote uh, you chose, uh, the body repeats landscape. I, I found that, I did some research, I also was not familiar with Meridel's work, um, and um, now I have a book that I need to read and all these different things, so I love these kinds of events that push me to learn about someone new or something new. Um, so the first piece I'm gonna do is um, related to that quote, the body repeats landscape, the source of each other, creating each other. And then the second short piece I'm going to do is actually um, 
when I was searching um, for things about Maribel, um, I found all these amazing quotes and I decided that I was going to make a puzzle out of them and create something with them. So you may recognize some of the words. I've, I, I created maybe 5% of it and the rest of it is all Maribel. So, so that's the fact. Once in future. We painted dawn into midnight. Out of cement ceilings, we made skylights. From gravel, we crafted fine and delicate chandeliers, hung them with fishing lines so they appeared to float in midair. We turned copper piping into rings, Venus circling our fingers. The oxidation turned our digits green, our limbs transforming into ferns and orchids. We breathed and our condensation created clouds. Our tears fed the sea. We prayed to all the living things. We sat in silence with the trees, our feet rooting into the ground to touch the highest energy. The evergreens in us, we breathed in tandem. And inside our lungs sprung a forest of veins, mimicking their cousin's limbs. We sprouted two intricate flowers in our minds for the left and right hemispheres. And we hung our thoughts there, believing that the petals would keep them safely tucked away. We recognized ourselves, didn't need mirrors to see our likeness. Even the dirt felt like us, the sand, our bones in a trillion pieces. We walked atop these beaches, sinking in, their legacy holding us. There was silence and we were not afraid. There was peace and we were not anxious. There was a world we did not conquer. So once again, this next piece is Merida. The sun with child, flesh shining, pagan and wise, still like budding tree, like cornstalk sweating in heat, walking or walk he heavily, time bending across sky, unknown child born with stories that never, never die. Seed into new country, a history of lies will not be our legacy. We will tell the myth of conquerors and their discoveries, unmask the betrayal, and know it was the bumblebee and the butterfly who survived, not these dinosaurs. Money will not be our currency. It will burn at the lightest touch of our fingertips, and we will warm our hands in that light. We will not be without dream. We will taste a thousand meals. We will not see the world as a stone. We will not negotiate with greed. We will outfox the frost and write on the walls of the sensuous and creative expression of life. We will not leave our passions deep and submerged. We will never die, those of us who have the future in us. Great. So um, next we're gonna hear from Sister Tree, um, and that is Dee Bruce and Carrie Jackson. Joyce. Carrie Joyce. Oh, Carrie Joyce. I should wear my glasses. <laughs> the last name is a bit through my husband, and so my daughter is named Merida. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, 
pleasure to be here. I used to be neighbors with this building. I used to live just over on um, Wheelock Parkway. So it's really nice. <laughs> um, okay, well, we're going to share a couple of vocal pieces. We brought instruments, but I think it, in the interest of balancing sound, that we'll just share these acapella. So the first one is called Appalachian Round. Uh, the second one is uh, Mountain Song and Savage Daughter. Take me back, oh hills I love Lift me from this lonely bed Light my way with stars above Curl soft wings about my head Wash my feet in crystal streams Cradle my arms in bars of oak Breathe the scent of pine for dreams Wrap me tight in earth and smoke Take me back, oh hills I love Lift me from this lonely bed Light me back, oh hills I love Curl soft rings as I will not lower 
song. I am my mother's savage daughter, <laughs> one who runs barefoot, cursing sharp stones. I am my mother's savage daughter, I will not cut my hair, I will not lower my voice. My mother's child dances in darkness and sings even songs by the light of the moon and watches the stars and renames the planets and dreams she can reach them with song and broom. I am my mother's savage daughter, the one who runs barefoot, cursing sharp stones. I am my mother's savage daughter, I will not cut my stumbled across, though, was she made this reference to James J. Hill, 
which um, I'm going to share with you because it's appropriate to be in the Carnegie Library. Yeah. And she called him, I don't remember the exact words that she used, I remember the sentiment, and I've gone back and tried to find the passage, but I can't find it. And it was something to the extent of, she called him the midnight thief of the railroad. And James J. Hill is one of these people that I, I mean, I could get cursed, I could curse, but I think he's an, a, a terrible person. Um, and I don't like that, that we remember those people. So I came up with a new name for James J. Hill um, back in 2013 when I decided that we needed new heroes and we needed new myth, myth people and we needed new stories. So I called James J. Hill, um, to me, I call him old workbench face. <laughs> Because I like to imagine what he's done to the land, and if you personified what he's done to the land back onto his face, it would look like an old workbench that had the shit beat out of it. <laughs> and not taken care of for a long time. So I wrote this poem for Meridel back a long time ago, and, and I've, I've carried it with me on many miles, so you can see what's happened here. <laughs> this poem is called Wooden Axle in the Wasteland of Trains. Jeffy at the spigot, those eyes like wind through bullet holes or a sink full of dirty pans, motorcycle clouds, jackstraw telephone poles. Went to see the beekeeper, a rope hanging from an oak, leaves on the kitchen floor, her breasts like snow falling through a torn screen. Root poems crow-footing out her arm is how the world ends. Sister coming home through the corn, old workbench face and his midnight thieves building the railroads a wasteland. Out of pine shadows, the regather begins to congeal. A fire is kindled from scattered orange peels and boxcars clanking up the moon. Jeffy up near the engine, singing Nobody Knows the Trouble, shoveling hallelujah from the avalanches. Smoke and laughter rise and once more go between stars. And so little sister protects the wandering needlework of the forsythia and the despoblados, puts blue on the rivers and streams, weighted with stones into her many ferny loops. Those who knew what the forest had in mind before wooden axle rolled up are standing in the doorways, refusing old workbench face and the conqueror's entry. This time, the, story, the stories will be told by the rare touchwood and quiet mossery, Jeffy at the six burner, little sister rolling out the dough, because generosity is how you prepare for a rainy day. Uh, and when I was at the Historical Society, I came across this poem that Tom McGrath wrote. Yeah. And at the top of it, it just says, For Meridel. It's called Beyond the Red River, so I'm going to read this to you. The birds have carried summer to the south, and the flower money is drying in the banks of bent grass, which the bumblebee has abandoned. We wait for a winter lion, body of ice crystals and sombrero of dead leaves. A month ago, from the salt engines of the sea, a machinery of early storms rolled toward the holiday houses, where summer still dozed in the poolside chairs, sipping an aging whiskey of distances and departures. Now the long freight of autumn goes smoking out of the land. My possibilities are all packed up, but still I do not leave. I'm happy enough here, where Dakota drifts wild in the universe, where the prairie is staring to shake in the surf of the winter dark. Um, the title for tonight, we were talking about um, what it should be called, and the idea of resistance came up, and 
I've been having a hard time leaving resistance alone because I think, I think we need to resist, but I think we need to have resilience and we need to have renewal and probably some other words that go along with seeds and um, women. So this is a poem towards that. One other thing I thought of on my ride over here is that there's a lot of things that I've seen lately about shred the patriarchy and um, down with the patriarchy. And I couldn't agree one more than 100,000% about that. I saw something the other day from a Diné woman who I, who I have tremendous respect for. And she said, it's not the matriarchy, it's the matrifocal. And I think that the archie is the problem. So I appreciate what she said, and I thought I would share that, because I think Maridel also would appreciate that. There is a cat up ahead and a weed in the sky. It's getting too dark. I can't identify the birds. When you pull over, show your eyes. When you ask how it's going, think about the way an open field of snow or a lake without waves does the same thing. In the canyon, the unknown is temporary. Roots breaking out her sides and roosters are nowhere to be found on his steep walls, though they are the color of a yellow watermelon, left out overnight with the chickens, windmills, and Milky Way. I can see the history of storms and reptile breath on their lips. Between rivers and mineral deposits, civilization is futurizing itself, leaving plow marks on the sides of the hemlock trees that line covered road. But if this is the future, I'm going down to the bottom muck. I'm gonna live on mud and cattails and hang my hat from the same rung as great-grandmother's apron. If this is the future, I'm gonna call it making water when wind blows rain from the leaves and branches after a storm has passed. I'm gonna call it resilience when a garden is planted or bread is baked and people gather together. I'm gonna to call it listening when I count the fallen apples mixed into the nighttime flight call of the oven bird and I can see feathers written on back of a waterfall. If the chanterelles and grizzlies are seen as knowledge holders and their wisdom is heard among the torrent of blackberries and overgrown roads, then by oaken crests of whitefish, by spirals and jetties, we must crash up the masts of these one-legged pirates and with antlers pry off the lids of their colonized spirits, setting loose into the quiet, roaring night a billion liberated, dirt-eating carnations of awe. If this is the future, watch your heart like a wildfire. Our eyes are a dream, and we are the headwaters laced with the will of salmon and guts full of stoneflies. If this is the future, all the winds rushing below the sun are unnumbered and free. Because tonight, we take the axe man by the hood, knifing out the counterfeit liberation of survival and the tyranny of bullshit jobs. The rock is breaking up. The river is reaching for its tail. Tonight is a weld in the quilt, a moon rising at the end of the road. Tonight is a gift from our ancestors. Yes, tonight is a gift from our ancestors. And what a joy to have poems read from the cell phone by Desdemona, and then poems written by Ben on a piece of paper that's been folded so many times. It's just the, the tactile quality of all of this is so great. So um, Tish Jones is, is next. We're delighted that Tish is in the house and with us. So please. Uh, the spirit of resistance is something that I am happy uh, Honor to honor and celebrate, so thank you for having me. I'm gonna read three really short poems. Like super short, under my five minutes. 
I tried to hold water once, kept it cupped in my palm as if there were no escape in the space I knew existed. Gaps in my grasp, a hole in the way I held them, albeit small, it was there, plain as day, and surely what I needed, yet it left my hands slow enough to deceive, but only at first. Only when I still felt I had something to be held at all. Once I realized my mistakes, I noticed how fast forever takes. How helpless you feel watching something slip away, knowing you could have handled it differently. That's the thing with technology, right? Uh, it's called All a House Can Hold. How many mothers' stories have been a basement deep stair for this house to affirm? Foundation, a thing held up over time. These hands here have built body large enough for future to fill with love. These walls were mined for the texture of life before life living. In this place, there is space for first pillar and new dress, both greater windows and endless light. Here is where children will come to be cradled by the colors of their ancestors and the images of tribe. If you have ever been here before, you belong here now. Uh, this is the last joint. I think this poem is about being busy. I don't really remember. I think it is. I don't know what this poem is about. Or like resistance. I don't know. Tell me. Um, Beached. I don't exactly remember when it started. I mean, the days began to bleed into one another, making a month a year, but I got here nonetheless to this sand hill where I feel stuck in motion constantly, trying to find my footing and make it somewhere other than where I am, and all I am is sifting sand and standing still, simmering with wishes of resolve, and all these people need me to be the one that figures out how to outdo a life of sand dunes and to-do lists that undo you as you shift and shuffle through the piles before you your life, a valley of shit that slips between your fingertips when all you want is something to hold on to or rest your weight on, but you can't bank on that these days because these days are proof that quicksand is real and you are sinking as people watch and need and push you to keep going. Thank you. And next we have Colleen Casey. Colleen. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm just going to uh, say hello. And also, since um, we've been talking about how tonight is a gift from the ancestors, I want to greet you with a traditional Dakota greeting. Um, I am Dakota. I'm a mix of lots of different things. But I want to say, ha, takiapi. And I said, hi, all my relatives. And I recognize that we are all related. And I am going to share two short pieces. But first, I'm going to share a quote um, by Maradella Sir. Can y'all hear me in the back? Am I loud enough? Yes. No, I'm not loud enough. Is this better? Not so much. You can come closer. There's still some seats up front. I hope you can hear me, but I thought I'd ask. Um, so here's a quote, and I was surprised nobody else brought it up. So um, I um, am reading off a phone. Some of you might think that's funny because you know me and I, oh yeah, I joke, I'm not smart enough for a smartphone, so I don't have a cell phone, I don't have a smartphone. And sometimes I joke, well maybe it's not really joking, it's like, well I'm really a conscientious objector. So I'm that's the 1%, I, I know, I don't have one, but I borrowed this from Candy, my dear friend. And um, 
This is on the Wikipedia site, and it might also be on the Minnesota Historical site um, under the page for Maridola Seward. It says, I tell the young writers who visit, carry a notebook. That is the secret of a radical writer. Write it down as it is happening. Yes. Um, so I'm humbled and honored to be here um, tonight and to be a part of this fabulous celebration for the inimitable, indomitable Marinella Lassour on this her birthday. Uh, I'm going to share a short piece. And this is based on a longer written piece that Meryl Dell wrote in 1934. And some of you may know it, it's called I Was Marching. But I'm going to preface that first with, I don't know, um, give it a little wave if you're familiar with the Minneapolis Trucker Strike, also the Minneapolis Teamster Strike of 1934. I want to do a shout out and wear my proud descendants button because my grandfather on my mom's side was a truck driver. And as I'm a truck driver, one of the 10 to 11,000 striking truckers in Minneapolis in 1934. I'm a granddaughter to all the 11,000-11,000 uh, strikers in that strike and the strike supporters of which Maridel Lassour was one. And wait, give a little wave if you are part of the 1934 group. And um, if um, y'all want more information, you saw some of us waving our hands and we're, we'd be happy to fill you in. So anyway. Um, if you know the piece, I hope I'm doing it justice. I did tweak it up a little bit, and um, you'll kind of understand what I did. And if you don't know the piece, I hope it's a taste that leaves you wanting to find out more. Maridella, uh, sorry. <laughs> I Was Marching by Maridella Stewart, adapted as a monologue by Colleen Casey. I had never been in a strike before. It was like looking at something that is happening for the first time. I had no thoughts, no words yet accrued to it. In American life, you often hear about things happening in a far and muffled way. One thing is said and another happens. For a while, I heard a lot about the strike. So I decided to go by strike headquarters. I walked by on the opposite side of the street and saw the dark old garage building and the gaunt young faces leaning from the upstairs windows. I started to go down there often. I'd look in and see the huge black interior and live coals of men moving, restless yet orderly, their eyes gleaming from their sweaty faces. Cars leaving filled with men, pickets going to the line, engines roaring out. I'd stay close to the door watching but didn't go in. I was afraid if I went in, they would put me out. After all, I could remain the spectator. And there were many spectators, artists, writers, professionals, even businessmen and women, standing across the street too. And I saw in their faces the same longings, the same fears. The truth is I was afraid. Not of the physical danger at all, but of an awful fright of mixing, of losing myself, of being unknown and lost. I can't describe what I felt, but perhaps it will come nearer to say that I felt I excelled in competing with others. 
Yet I knew instantly that these people were not competing at all. That they were acting in a strange, powerful trance of movement together. Looking at that dark and lively building, masked with men, I felt their direct and awful movement, mute and powerful, drawing them into a close and growing cohesion, like a powerful fire in the midst of the city. And it filled me with fear and awe, and it filled me with hope. I kept feeling that if I went in, they would put me out, but no one paid any attention. A woman said without looking at me, the thermometer says 99. Yes, I said. The sweat ran off her burning skin. The boys will be coming in, she said. She had a scarred face. Boy, will it be a madhouse. I jumped in. Do you need any help? She replied. Some of us been pouring coffee since 2 o'clock this morning. Steady. No let up. She started to go. She didn't pay any special attention to me. She didn't even seem to be thinking of me. I watched her go. I felt rebutted. Then I saw instantly she didn't see me because she only saw what she was doing. I ran after her. I found the kitchen organized like a factory. Nobody asked my name. I'm given a large butcher's apron. I realize I have never before worked anonymously. The forewoman sets me to washing tin cups. There are not enough cups. We have to wash fast and rinse them, set them up quickly for buttermilk and coffee. Then I'm put to pouring coffee. At first, I look at the men's faces, and then I don't look anymore. It seems I'm pouring coffee for the same tense, sweaty face, the same body, the same blue shirt and overalls. Eyes looking, hands raising, a thousand cups, throats burning, eyes bloodshot from lack of sleep. The body dilated to catch every sound over the whole city. Buttermilk, coffee. Okay, this next one's kind of a short one. And I toyed with the words, you know how when we're writers, we do, we, you know, each word means so much. Do we go with this one? Do we go with that one? And what first came to me was wise word women. But then I thought, why just women? Wise word warriors? And I knew the lineup would be men and women. And I don't think gender is binary. And it's a continuum. And, and it's a construction. And well, if it's a construction, it can be deconstructed because it is oppressive. But I thought, remembering my grandpa and the 10,000 men who came up, men and women who came up for the funeral of some of the strikers who were killed in Minneapolis in 1934. I thought, that was 100,000 people. I thought, hey, the only time I've seen 100,000 people gathered for political action was on the Capitol after the inauguration of this last president. And so I thought, OK, I'm going to go with wise word women. But with the idea that it can be wise word warriors, you know, women, we like to include people. So, so anyway, and I also thought, Marielle Lassour, and excuse my language, but she was badass. A woman rocked for how many decades? And she was blacklisted. So she was so powerful that she was blacklisted. So I just thought I'd bring that up. And I um, am most familiar with work from the I Was Marching piece because of my interest in the, the strike. But I'm also uh, 
I'm familiar with her work as a writer of the proletariat, so. Solidarity. <laughs> okay, here we go. Now on this one, I'm gonna have a few uh, wise word women joining in, so if you're holding one of these papers, now's <laughs> the time to follow along. Wise word women. For Meradel Lesur on her birthday, for Shanai Matson on her birthday, for all the other word, wise word women and wise word warriors, here we go. Wise word women, we've got grit. We don't mince words, we tell it like it is. We may strategize and choose an angle, but we speak truth to power and power to truth, and in so doing, we draw others in. We draw others in. Wise word women, we don't quit. Where others step aside, we're quick to bring our wit and our poetry. And our songs. And our drums. And our vision. And our courage. And our compassion. And our pencils. And our notebooks. And our purpose. And our persistence. And of course, our dancing shoes. <laughs> Wise word women, we let our conscience be our guide. Where there is hatred and oppression, Injustice, degradation, you'll find we take a sign and grab banners, write letters, and stories, make signs, craft puppets, run for office, draft laws, raise our voices, engage our intellects, draw on our creativity, pull out our passion, invite others, ignite others, fill up the page, step onto the stage, step into the streets, and organize. Organize. Thank you, Colleen. Thank you to all those voices. Great. Uh, it's not on. Thank you, all those voices. Um, Colleen's mentioning the 34 strike. I just want to give a shout out to Keith Christensen, a great visual artist who's here tonight and has had a great impact on this place. and on our remembering of the strike of 1934. If you notice in the far corner of the banner, um, Keith created a board game called Game Turn, which is about the 1934 strike. You should all come back and play Keith's game. Um, and Keith also painted part of the St. Paul Labor History mural, which is downstairs, which includes a wonderful representation of Meridel. Um, so soak up some visual art while you're here too. Um, our final presentation this evening is by Louis Alamayu. Um, and Louis is going to read um, the poem that Meridel was writing um, as she was transitioning to her next iteration. So, Louis. Good evening. Um, I think the first time I saw Meridel, I had no idea who she was. It was uh, June 1968. I was finishing my last year at college, and I got a job in Washington, D.C. And the Poor People's March was happening then. And um, of course, Martin was killed April of 1968, 50 years ago. There was a meeting in a church, and Andy Young was uh, one of the main speakers. And this woman stood up and started talking in this eloquent voice. But she looked like 
um, a woman, like the stereotype of a woman from Appalachia. She was disheveled, hair all over, and this eloquent musical voice. And I was thinking, I better rethink my cliches about Appalachian women. But maybe about 10 years later, I met her in Minneapolis, and I began to connect the dots that it was the same woman because of that voice. And I had the opportunity to introduce her to Gwendolyn Brooks. and nothing is familiar to me. It's not sleep. I am simply gone, entirely gone from memory of the body and also as if some dramatic character has fallen from you and left you amazed alone without your personality. Yes, you have died. That traditional person and all her memories and took on alien memories. It is strange. You are taking on a new personality, a stranger, alienated, unfamiliar. I write differently. Then I seem to be gone. My body inhibits, immobile, an empty house. I'm sitting here as no one, absolutely no one. The wind blowing into your valves and caves and habitat. Then another tide sweeps on all the fire and identity of a powerful woman of entire circulation. All the floods sing and breaking new force and tide and no need to do anything. We've taken off our persona, 
and removed a dress to make a study of bones. The death of the decorative person comes back. Call back the naked and the reality. We're shedding what chickens do to shed your feathers. Molt. Change your reality. But this shedding of all your costume and personature is most amazing. A certain clothing of personalities falls, falls away, leaving you naked, bare. Death of a shallow person. A return to depth. Death. Who is that with you? It is one big movement. Bring the heart, the blood, in her river. New return. In a movement from many keening coming. He comes now. The night is ripening. Yes. All up and down the great cottonwoods. 30 million dead, trees of opulence, September 1996, girl, girl, behind being woman, broken in the fragment of a stolen nation, psychic notion. Insanity, the pall of the directed, the ghostly, it builds, the death builds. The flesh is charged, memory is present, it is substance. Slow down, slow fragments print with the body, a certain Expectation, star-built memory. It is slow. What is real? What builds? What grows form? What is fantastic? 
So about two months ago, maybe, maybe a little longer, several of us got together and Shanai and Barb and David Tilson and Kimberly and jo Josie Tilson and, and we started talking about the value of doing something on Meridel's birthday. And uh, I'm just so moved by what's happened here tonight. And thank you all for coming and bringing your energy um, and voices. And uh, please make sure you've signed the guest book so we can let you know we're, we're dreaming. Maybe we would do this every year on Meridel's birthday. Not a bad idea. Um, thank, thank everyone who read and sang and performed. One, one more round of applause.